And as our lights come up, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Amos, chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 18 today. You know, for the past several weeks, we've been uh, looking at and exploring uh, Amos's words to the tribes of Israel, to the two nations, to Judah and Israel, about the Lord's displeasure, actually his, his utter disgust with who his people had become. <clears throat> they had let their false religions, their false rituals, their hypocritical worship uh, blind them basically from the most important relationship of all, and that was their relationship with their Heavenly Father. And they have come to a critical low point here uh, in the midst of their nation. You know, the threatening thing about sin is that if we bind ourselves to sin, it becomes almost second nature. If we're, if we're kind of in love with our sin and we, and we take our sin and it's kind of a part of us and it's kind of wrapped in us and we start to feel that it, it's just kind of like there and it's, it can happen and, and it's okay, then it's really second nature when that happens. And that's exactly what we're dealing with here with these guys uh, in the book of Amos today. It's kind of like the farmer who had a mule and the prices of oats was going up and he wasn't really a, that great of a mule. He was just kind of a mule at the farm. And uh, he didn't really want to spend money on the oats. So he said, well, what can I do? So he said, well, I'll supplement his diet with some sawdust. So he had a couple buckets in the stall. And so he put 10% you know, of the sawdust and 90% of the oats. And well, that went well for a day. And then he came back the second day. Oh, well, everything's gone. So that's going for it. So he added more sawdust and decreased the oats, you know, to save a little money. Well, that was going pretty good for uh, a couple of two or three days. And he got to the point where it was 50-50, you know, and the mule was eating that, and he came in one day, and the mule had died from the sawdust. And the thing about the mule is, is that humans are a, a lot like that. When we take on a sin, even if it's just a, an ounce of a sin, and we start to take a little more of that, take a little more of that, and live with it a little bit more and a little bit more, it becomes eventually where it's part of our spiritual diet. And that is not what God wants for our lives. God wants a pure spiritual diet for you and me from his word. The tragedy is about this particular case here is that these people were God's chosen people. They were his priesthood. He, God is the one who called these people from the very beginning and said, you are going to be abundant. I am going to bless you and you are going to be like the sands of the seashore. These were his people they were acting this way toward him. They actually thought that they were really invincible. That's the type of attitude that they have. No matter what I do, no matter what sin I commit, I'm really invincible because, hey, I stand under the umbrella of being a Hebrew, of being a Jew. So today we're going to look at four woes that Amos declares among the people. He's going to say, woe to the impertinent, He's going to say, woe to the indifferent. He's going to tell them, woe to the indulgent. And he's going to tell them, woe to the arrogant. And as we go through these different woes, what I'd like you to do today is, is kind of measure these against your life and see if there's any change that needs to be made. I know there is in my life. So we're going to pick up in verse 18 today. And it says in verse 18, it says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. 
Now, Amos is telling these people that he's telling them, woe to the impertinent. The impertinent man is the man, the know-it-all, okay? He's the schoolmaster who thinks that as he comes into a situation, he has everything all under control. He knows everything there is about the situation. No one can tell him anything different. He's proud. He's arrogant. He's both boastful and prideful. He has no respect for God, and that's exactly what we see about these people here. The day of the Lord was a... a the day of the Lord is a day that God is going to come back and God is going to establish his earthly kingdom and God is going to judge the people. He's going to judge uh, those who have done wrong against him. And that was the day of the Lord. And these people were saying, I anticipate the day of the Lord. We want the day of the Lord to come. And Amos is saying, wait just a minute. You really don't know what you're talking about. You see, because the people had thought that as the day of the Lord would come, that it would be a day of victory for them. They think, oh, well, I am, I am a, a part of God's family. He has called me and he has placed us here. And so that just kind of gives me the right to stand up and say, okay, it's going to be victory for us. They thought that they were going to have victory. They thought that it was going to be a beautiful thing and that God was going to come and he was going to judge only the enemies round and about uh, the Israelites. And that's what they thought that this was going to happen, this, this day of the Lord. But they were so filled with their own importance that it just corrupted their mind. It just blinded their mind. They had bad theology. Proverbs 4, uh, 23 and 27 says, More than anything you guard, protect your mind, for life flows from it. Have nothing to do with a corrupt mouth. Keep devious lips far from you. Focus your eyes straight ahead. Keep your gaze on what is in front of you. Watch your feet on the way, and all your paths will be secure. Don't deviate a bit to the right or to the left, or turn your feet, and turn your feet away from evil. Amos was declaring to them that there was going to be a, a reckoning for their deeds that they had done in front of God. There was going to be punishment. There was going to be judgment for them for how, how they were responding to the, to the holy and righteous God. And he was telling them this, and it goes on in verse 18, and it says, if you look in your Bible, it says, what will the day of the Lord be for you? Amos asked these people. And then he goes on to answer their question. He goes on to say, it will be darkness and not light. The popular opinion of that day was that the day of the Lord would be the day of light, a day of salvation, a day where everything will be set right. We will be lifted up and everyone else in the world will be judged by God. But Amos declared that it would be a gloomy darkness. Some of your Bibles may say that, gloomy darkness. But what that really means is it means it's going to be pitch black for them. There will be no light for them when the Lord comes back. Now, just, just think with me a little bit about having no light in the situation. If we would turn the lights off and we couldn't even see our hand in front of our face, we'd be stumbling all over. We'd be, we'd be, we'd be tripping and we wouldn't know where to go. We wouldn't have any direction if, if we lived in that manner. And Amos says, there is coming a day, Israel, when you are going to be just like that. There is going to be no escape for you. You're not going to know which way to turn. You're not going to know which way to go because you just will not be able to see it. And Amos has told them that there would be no way to escape. Amos continues in verse 19. He says, 
It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. So when these people come in to destroy Israel, all the Israelites are going to be running and they're going to be trying to save their lives and they're going to run this way thinking, okay, I can escape over here. But Amos is saying, when you try to escape over there, there's going to be something there to take care of you. There's going to be judgment there. There's going to be judgment here. He goes on, he says, he goes home and rests his hands against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Amos is telling them there is no safe place for you because of your actions toward God. There is no getting out of the judgment that I am bringing upon you. And that is very, very sad for these people. In verse 20, it says, Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? Amos is, is telling them that you, you have no idea what is about to happen to you. You think you live in luxury. Remember, they, they have wealth and have everything. You think you live in luxury and you think everything is, is wonderful and grand within in your own environment. But I am telling you, you don't know what is about to happen to you. Scary, scary thought. He was saying there's no more dreadful thing than to anticipate the day of the Lord knowing that you stand on the wrong side. And he was proclaiming woe to these people. Moving on in verse 21, he says, I hate, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the, the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. This will be comparable to God maybe telling his church today, you know, I, I hate your assemblies. I hate your worship services. I, I hate your mission banquets. I hate your fellowship. I hate your home groups because when you come to that, it's all false. There's nothing true in your heart about that. I love how Eugene Peterson states it in the message. Listen to how he puts this particular passage. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and your conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. God was saying that they had come to such a place where there was such a a fake atmosphere over who they were and a fake atmosphere over what they were doing um, uh, that was so against what God's word had called them to do. And he was saying, he said, you have gone so far and all I want is your heart. All I want is you to give me your whole heart, not part of it. You know, and as Christians, sometimes we do that. When we come to Christ, we, we give him a part of our heart, and, and here it is, God, we want you to have it, and, and here it is, do with what you want, but I take a little bit of that and I hold it out here by myself because this is the part that I play around with. This is my stuff that I want to do, and I haven't really given him that. And we find that same situation here. These people, they are, they are living, they're living a worse than that. They haven't given him any of his heart. 
They have taken it all away, and they have done everything against his holy and righteous commands. And God is telling them, all I want is you. I don't need your worship. I don't need your money. I don't need your sacrifices. All I want is your life. It's pretty simple. All I want is you. But yet it's rather difficult sometimes for humans. God's concern was that his people be righteous in their character and just in their conduct. This was such a great part of Amos's message that, that God wanted these people to be. He said, no matter how much religious activity that we participate in, if we don't give God our full heart, we've really missed it, church. And Amos said that judgment is coming and God is gonna be a force to be reckoned with. There's no way to escape that. So if you're taking notes today in your handout, first point is do not be, do not be deceived by your blessings and influence. God is a gracious God. God is a loving God. God desires to bless us. God desires to nurture us and to give us good gifts. He is a wonderful, loving, and gracious Father. But we ought not let those good gifts and those blessings within our lives deceive us into thinking something differently. We, not, we ought not let those things make us have a change of heart. These people lived in a time of national growth. They had plenty of money. Uh, they were relatively safe. They had influence. They had abundantly more than they needed. Their economy was well, but yet they were slapping God in the face. They were being impertinent before God. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, you are a bunch of blind guides. <clears throat> he said, you are hypocrites and you are fools. You're whitewashed tombs. You are beautiful on the outside, but in the inside you are full of dead men's bones. An interpretation of that is that your, your tree looks really beautiful. It's big. It's strong. The fruit on it looks so good, good enough to eat. And pulling it off and taking a bite, and it's nothing but rottenness. And that's, that's what Jesus had told those men. And those men acted much like these men act here in Amos' day. What happens when we become impertinent or we slap God in the face, the, the fact of the matter is, is that he cannot use us and he wants to use us in a great and mighty and powerful way. He has placed us here to affect his purposes, not ours, but his. And so he wants to use us into doing his will for this world. First Peter, I think it's on the slide, First Peter 1, 13, 16 says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as to the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. We have to understand that God is the potter of the clay. And the clay cannot tell the potter what shape to make. The clay cannot say, no, I'm going to stay hard and I'm not going to be agreeable to your hands wrapping yourselves around me and doing exactly what you want with me, God. So that's what these people were doing. But we cannot say that to God. God is the potter of our lives and he is the shaper and he is the one who forms everything for us. 
We must give in. We must submit to him in order for the potter to be able to shape the beautiful vessel that, that he wants us to be, that he desires. So what was the Lord's remedy for his people? Well, it tells us in verse 27. He says, so I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. He has spoken. He goes on in chapter 6. He says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. The notable people in this first of the nations, those the house of Israel comes to. Amos is saying, woe to the indifferent we understand that the pronouncement of what woe was for the, was for the uh, southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. But Amos had already kind of clarified to us that you know, this, these nations, they were very corrupt, corrupt to the core. But, but here, Amos does something. He identifies the people that are responsible for this. He calls these people notable men. And it's obviously that these men were politicians, they were they were leaders, they were religious leaders, they may have been the upper class of the society, but he calls them out as these notable men saying that you are indifferent before me. Part of their indifference stemmed from the fact that they thought that they couldn't be touched. Remember we just read that, you know, he says that you're on this hill in Zion, you, you place your trust in this hill, you place your trust in, in Samaria because you, you think that you can't be touched. You, you think that your land and your country is impregnable, but God had a different uh, story about that. They could not see the reason. They, they didn't remember that Mount Zion was once occupied by the Canaanites, and that's where David came up, and, and he slaughtered them, and he took over that area. So I guess they just kind of forgot that. But he goes on in verse 2, and he says, cross over into Kalna and see. Kalna was far north, almost to where Turkey is, cross over to Kauna and see, and then go from there to great Hamath, which Hamath was over near the Syrian desert over there, and then go down to, the, to Gath, to the Philistines on, on the Mediterranean coast. And Amos asked them, are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? See, the invaders had already reached these points around the Israelites. They, they were there. They were coming. It was about to break over and spill over into the land of Israel. And Amos saying, are you better than these kingdoms? Have you, can you not wake up and see what is happening in my country? And they were being pinned in all around. And yet they gave off this attitude of indifference of, oh, we can't be touched. Well, God used the Assyrian army to come in and, and to dismantle these outside heathen reprobate nations, and God's own people had grown complacent. The truth is, God doesn't look at uh, the talent of national leaders. He doesn't look at the extent of the nation's army, and he doesn't look at the prosperity or its economy. Sound familiar? And that sounds just like what a lot of people think about in America but God looks at the heart of men, and he was looking at the heart of the two kingdoms, his people, and his people's hearts were far away from God. Self-righteousness is insidious. And in this case, it was based on lies. It was based on uh, motivated by pride. And, and above all, they were trusting in not God, but they were trusting in themselves. They had this self-righteous attitude. 
and God was not pleased. Second point is do not be complacent to the urgings of God. Complacency is a blight that saps energy, dulls the attitudes, and causes a drain on the brain. If we become indifferent or if we become complacent toward God, if I do that, God is just not going to sit back and you know, say, okay, well, he's, he's going about his merry way. No, God's going to be knocking on my door. And he's going to, ask, he's going to be asking, what are you doing, idiot? Shape up. Can't you see what my word says? Why are you doing this? Why are you going down that road? Get back to where I am. God is not going to let me sit there. He doesn't want to do that. We can't see God visibly. We don't always hear him audibly. Not always, some do. But we can certainly feel God. And when we feel God tapping upon our heart, we should lean into him and we should hear his urging to our life because he's trying to speak to us. He's trying to tell us something. He's trying to give us something that will be good for our life. Verse three in chapter six, Amos goes on. He says, you dismiss any thought of the evil day. You dismiss it completely. It's not gonna happen to you. You just dismiss it and bring in a reign of violence. So since you are dismissing this, my children, you're actually ushering it in to your, to your midst. He said, woe to those who indulge. The leaders here were saying, it can't happen here. We are too wealthy. We are too great. We have too much good going on. Everything is perfect. Uh, every, everybody is hunky-dory. It's good. It can't happen here. But God had a different viewpoint. In fact, if you go to Amos 9, verse 10, this is what it says that God says about these people who says, it can't happen here, it's not gonna take place. He said, disaster will never, and he said, all the sinners among my people who say, disaster will never overtake or confront us will die by the sword. So these people say, it's not gonna happen, not gonna happen here, it can't, it can't, we're God's people. And God says, no, it is going to happen. It's gonna to happen to you. But they, they were still, they were still unresponsive to God's words, to his heeding, through, through all the prophets, through all the messages that they brought them. He was, they were still unresponsive to God. And they were really ushering this day of judgment closer and closer and closer and closer. Just read about how the rich and the leaders abandoned God for the mere pleasures of the world in verse 4. It says that they lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches, uh, and dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. You see, the leaders were taking everything good in the country, and they were just kind of taking it and hoarding it to themselves and, and having this great time and these great feasts. They wouldn't take some old, struggling, you know, tough cow out in the field. They were taking the, the calves that had been specially fed, that were brought up to, for slaughter, that the good meat, the kind of steak that you would get at the fine steakhouse, that's what they were feasting on all the time, feasting on the choice flock. And they were, they were leaving the poor out. They were lying back on the couches, Amos says. You're lying back, your arms are out, your legs are apart, like some of us may do on a Sunday afternoon. And Amos was inferring that these men were lazy and they were drunk. <clears throat> they were indulging in this self-gratification 
of all the, all the pleasurable things that the world has to offer. And man does it offer a lot on this corner and on that corner and on that shelf and this shelf. The world wants to deceive us. That is Satan's ploy to, to be, that the world would deceive us into thinking that, oh, that's good. I, I like that. I, I want some of that. And in reality, God is saying that that is not your path, my people. In verse five, it says, they improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. Best way I can describe this is that they were, they were probably drunk when they were doing this, and they were, they were making up songs, probably songs that could not be communicated well. Uh, and they were trying to make instruments that, that was not like you know, good instruments that we would have on stage here. They were trying to make instruments, and they were trying to play this and, and sing these lyrics that were off kilter to God. And God says, I am not hearing that. That is not stuff to my ears that I want to hear. That is loathsome to me. I can't stand it. Would you just shut up and go to sleep? Go get drunk again. Because I cannot stand that. It says in verse 6 that they drink wine by the bowlful. Not the glass. Not a shot glass. But by the bowlful, they're, they're drinking wine and they're getting drunk. It says that they anoint themselves with the finest oils, but they do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Here are these fat cats sitting in their mansions, these leaders, these religious people. They're sitting back and they're enjoying the, the absolute best things that their world has to offer while many, many other people around about them are not doing well, but they didn't care. They look right past it because they are taking in everything that gratifies their, their own thought, their own mind, their own stomachs. They wanted that gratification. And whatever happened to their countrymen, it was irrelevant to them. They didn't care, Amos says. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, they securely indulged in such delights and grieved not for the distress of their brethren. For God had miserably afflicted the whole kingdom before their eyes. The leaders just could not see the discipline of God. They, they either could not see it or they would not see it. They either were too drunk to see what God was doing or they just, they just didn't care. When we begin to ease our minds saying that our sin is a necessary evil, it begins to look more and more necessary and less and less evil. Let me say that again. That's a great quote. When we begin to ease our minds saying that our sin is a necessary evil to us, it begins to look more and more necessary and less and less evil. It just takes a little bit. It just takes a little bit. And then it can grow and it can grow and it can grow. And before long, it's just second nature. He says in verse 7, he says, therefore, they will, go, they will now go into exile. He says, therefore, they will now go into exile as the first of the captives. What's he saying? He is saying these people who have indulged, these people who have looked past the needs of the nation, these people who are sitting back and, and gaining all of these precious things through their life, he said those people are going to be the first one that's going to go out into captivity. 
They're going to be led out first, these people. They're going to be taken away. He says, and the feasting of those who sprawl out, it will come to an end. God is, God is fed up with these people. He is about to end it. He is about to say, no more. I don't want any more of it. I don't want to look down on it. I am about to ruin you. So again, if you're taking notes, point number three is do not become infatuated with sinful distractions. It's just a distraction. It's just a minor thing. You know, sitting at the computer and a, and a, and a woman scantily clad comes across my computer. It's just, a, it's just a little thing. I didn't even do it. It just kind of came up, one of those ads that pop up. I didn't, I didn't do that. But I'm certainly not doing anything about it. It's just a little thing. <clears throat> please, please, please. Don't let these small little things become infatuations in your mind and your heart because they will ruin you. In C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, the, the senior demon screw tape, he's guiding his new tempting nephew, Wormwood, uh, to keep the Christian sliding away from his faith. And this is what he says to Wormwood. He says, uh, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Life can be that way sometimes. The devil can be that way sometimes, where he just wants to edge us a little bit. He doesn't want to edge us the whole way. Forget the whole way. That's, you know, he's not going to do that. There's no fun in that for him. Just edge me a little bit. I'll stay here for a while. Edge me a little bit more. Before you know, I'm, I'm outside of the, the will of God. I'm outside of the bounds of God, and I'm, I'm facing the judgment and the retribution that these cats are facing. There is nothing more sinister than, than seeing, and I've seen it, there's nothing more sinister than seeing Satan do this in the life of an individual, where it just started out just so small, and then it engulfs that person. That is sinister, because that is not how God that is not how God wants us to live. That is not his plan for our life. When it comes to our relationship with our Heavenly Father, we must be vigilant. We have to be vigilant. We can't take it as something that we just, you know, go about our day and, and we not kind of think about it. It's not really that serious. It has to be the most serious thing within your life. Not work, not family, not anything. God and your relationship with him has to be the first and foremost, the most important thing in your life. And it should be that, shouldn't it? Don't we serve a great God who is awesome and powerful and mighty and who has saved us, who has given us eternal life on the other side of our last breath? If that is the case, then our, our, it should be demanded that we follow him with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength. Anything less is not good. First Peter 5, 8 and 10 says, Be serious. 
He says, be serious. This is not casual. This is not a casual affair. Be alert. He said, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone, looking for anyone that he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. He says, now the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little. That's good stuff. Amos goes on to talk about the arrogance of this people. He says, woe to the arrogant. It's obvious to any reader who's reading this that that these people have gone far away from God and they had closed their heart off from God. They were not living for God. They were using God. They They were using our God. But he says in verse 8, he said, the Lord God has sworn by himself. Okay, this is God saying, by my name, I am swearing this. That is serious. This is the declaration of Yahweh, the God of hosts. I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and his citadels. Now, now just, just think just for a second. These people were God's people. They were his chosen people. He called them out. He led them out of Egypt. He walked with them to the desert. He ushered them into this beautiful, prosperous land and gave them everything that they could possibly imagine or want and did it all by his power and his might and, and he's the one that went up before them to do that. And here Amos is saying that Yahweh, he says, I cannot stand their arrogance. I cannot stand their citadels. What, he's, what, what Amos is saying is that, what I think is that these people were wearing such a mask. They had on this mask that when others looked at them, that they looked like, a, they looked like one of God's people. Yeah, okay, oh yeah, that's one of God's people there. That's an Israelite over there. They looked the part. But on the inside between that and on the back of that, they were not his people. They were not acting as such. They were unworthy of adoption. They were unworthy of the priesthood and the kingdom. And God says, I swear by own name that that these that are doing this will endure destruction. So what is their reward for their arrogance? Well, it's death, it's destruction, and it's defeat. He goes on to say, so I will hand over the city and everything in it, and if there are 10 men left in one house, they will die a close relative and a burner will remove his corpse from the house. So a close relative and an undertaker would come in and and they would remove the the dead people within the house that they were hiding in the house. And what Amos was telling these people is that the Syrians are coming. They're going to come in. They're going to decimate. They're going to destroy your land, everything that you have. And they're going to usher and start to take you away. And after those battles, after that terrible scene when everything's falling apart, He said, there's going to be some of you left over, and like a bunch of little crybabies, you're going to run into a house to try to hide from God. And God says, no way, I am not going to let that happen. You are not going to get out of this. He goes on to say, (coughs) 
He says, and if there are 10 men left in one house, they will die. God is going to use pestilence. He's going to use disease to take care of the rest of those people. And they're going to have to have undertakers come into their house, and they're going to have to have them hauled away. There is no escape for these people. They are going to face this judgment that God is bringing him. And question to, question to you, question to me. Um, are you that way? Am I that way? Am I the type of person that God has to put over his knee and take a two by four to me and beat my backside until I submit to him? Until I get my mind right? Until I understand what God is trying to tell me? Does he have to do that to me? I don't want to live that type of life where I I'm, I'm, have that relationship with him. I'm going to have a relationship where I can come to him and I know that he is going to sup with me and I with him and my relationship is going to grow and it's going to build and I'm going to be in tune to what he says and I'm going to follow his leadership in my life. It doesn't happen all the time, but that's what I desire. That's what I want. These people here, they didn't even want that. The gracious father is desperate to bless his people and to follow who follow him. Verse 10, he says, he will call to someone in the inner recesses of the house, any more with you? And that person will reply, none. Then he will say, silence, because Yahweh's name must not be invoked. These people had thought that they were invincible, and they were using the name of God to promote that. They, were, they weren't addressing God's name in the right way, in other words. They were using it in a wrong way. And here what Amos is saying is that when, when, when these people are, are dead and they pull him out and he comes and asks, is, is there anyone else in there? They're going to say no, and they will not be able to use the name of the God. Do you know why? Because they will be in such fear of that name because of what has happened, because of the destruction that God has brought onto them, that they will not even utter it out of their mouth. They will not even let loose from their lips the name of God because they are in such fear of the destruction and the turmoil that is coming upon their lives. I hope I never get that way. Fear will come over these people, and the name of God will be terror to them. God's people were acting as a reprobate, reprobate nation, um, and they, they just wanted to hide from God. So then the Lord announces the, the climax to his wrath. He says in verse 11, he says, For the Lord commands the large house will be smashed to pieces and the small house to rubble. That means they're... Their big, fine mansions that they're living in, the cities, it's all going to be smashed. And all their summer houses, all their beach cabins, everything out in the, in the plains, all that's going to be laid to waste as well. There's nothing that's going to be left. It says in verse 12, do horses gallop on the cliffs? Does anyone plow there with oxen? You have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, meaning bitterness and sorrow. Amos reveals to them, this is very important, Amos is revealing and telling us that, that they have gone so far that God can no longer plow their hearts. Their heart is now developed into a heart of stone. He says, I can't even get in there and I can't even plow that up because your heart is such a heart of stone. Fourth point, don't let pride be your spiritual downfall. Don't let pride be your spiritual downfall. These people were full of arrogance and slothfulness and indulgence, and they turn their eyes away from God, don't be that way. Three takeaways. Be, human, be, be humble. 
okay? Be humble before God. If you need more humility, recognize your sinfulness. If you don't recognize your sinfulness, that's sometimes worse than the sin. Be reverent before God. Have a, have a strong reverence for God. And know your purpose. Please, please, please know your purpose. If you're just wandering in this life and you're getting up every day and you're going and you're doing anything and you're coming home and you don't, you don't really understand God's purpose for your life, please don't be that way. Know what his purpose is for your life. If you don't know, ask him. He will tell you and he will put you on that path. I want to close today with a prayer of John Calvin. I thought this was so appropriate for this passage. And this is what it says. This is what he says. He says, Grant, Almighty God, that seeing we are so sleepy, yea, so fascinated by our sins, that nothing is more difficult than to put off our own nature and to renounce that wickedness to which we have become habituated. Oh, grant that we, being really awakened by thy scourgings, may truly return to thee, and that, having wholly changed our disposition and renounced all wickedness, we may sincerely and from the heart submit ourselves to thee. And so look forward to the coming of thy Son, that we may cheerfully and joyfully wait for him by ever striving after such a renovation of life as may strip us of our flesh and all corruptions until being at length renewed after thine image, we become partakers of that glory which has been obtained for us by the blood of the same, thy only begotten son. And it's a great prayer. Strip away your own self. Don't be caught up in the me generation because it's not about you. It's all about God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great word. It's a, it's a powerful word. I so hate that people in this world, your own people, God, did not see the value of following you and, and running strong after you, God. But then I look at our own lives. I look at our own nation, and, and we can be the same way, Lord. And so, Father, for when we have done that, when we have placed ourselves above uh, who you are and above your wishes and commands for our lives because of our sin, forgive us of that. Not only forgive us of that, God, but please show us so that, that we will not go there again, that, that we will not knock on that door of sin again, but yet we will stay holy and pure and blameless before your sight, that we will, we will stay in your pathway, we will run after you, and we will stay close to you, just like a, just like a son stay close to his father. We pray, dear God, that you would give us strength to be able to do that, that, that our eyes and our hearts and our minds will not not get above who we are. We are just mere sinners saved by your grace. And so, Father, as we travel this road with you, may you be first and foremost in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, so that all things that happen in our life will be done for the glory of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.